1: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
0: And Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, dress listeners, to part two of our two-part series on Gucci, the fashion history of a family. In part one, we explored the Gucci company's origin story and history, which we learned are not, in fact, the same thing. (laughs) There might be a little myth mixed into that origin story. We left off Gucci's timeline in 1953. That year witnessed both the expansion of the company into the U.S. with the opening of its first New York City boutique, and the death of the company's founder and patriarch, Guccio Gucci. With Guccio's passing, Aldo, his son, really moved into his role as the company leader and figurehead.
1: As Aldo's daughter, Patricia, writes, quote, with the opening of the Manhattan store, my father's passion was unleashed. He took great pride in the fact that All three of his sons were by then working for the family firm. Giorgio and Roberto plotted away diligently behind the scenes, while the more colorful Paolo, a chip off the old block, as one could say, was encouraged to draw on his creative impulses and set out to create new designs, as he watched each of them bring his own unique talents to the company. Papa knew he had created not only a myth, but also a legacy— The New York premises were the most elegant, aspirational yet, exuding sophistication, luxury, and glamour in a trench that would be echoed worldwide,
0: end quote. Aldo's expansion of Gucci into the U.S. also earned him accolades from the fashion press as a pioneer of Italian design. And throughout the 1950s, Gucci's bags would become a staple of the country's fashion magazines, both in editorials and in ads that after 1955 began to feature the tagline, quote, "'Quality is remembered long after price is forgotten.'" Gucci continued to expand internationally through the 60s, opening stores in London, Palm Beach, Paris, and the latter location was opened in 1963, and this was the same year that Aldo's fourth child and only daughter, Patricia, was born to Bruna, a woman who, let's just say, was not his wife— or the mother of his three sons. (laughs) Bruno was actually an employee at Gucci's Rome location where the couple met and fell in love. And their love affair lasted decades until they finally married in 1981. But this is a story you can read all about in Patricia's memoir, which we've been quoting from um, pretty extensively over these last two episodes.
1: The 1960s also witnessed a solidification of Gucci products, their loafers and their handbags, especially as coveted international status symbols worn by celebrities and the glitterati of society alike. Case in point, the G1907 handbag that had been around since the 1950s was actually renamed the Jackie after the famed first lady who was spotted carrying it frequently. And Jackie being Jacqueline Kennedy or Jackie O was not the only of the era's many fashion icons to sport Gucci products. Others included Elizabeth Taylor and Audrey Hepburn.
0: In 1964, the New York Times confirmed Gucci's internationally celebrated status with a full-page article entitled Gucci Bags Prized by Women the World Over and featured an interview with the company's patriarch, Aldo. The article references the Diamante pattern as now part of the brand's quote unquote classic offerings, having been a staple of Gucci design at this point for over two decades. Prophetically, the article writes: quote, The Gucci family hopes that this pattern will someday rival in stature the prestigious LV pattern on luggage by Louis Vuitton of France. I think it's safe to say, April, that today it has inarguably reached that status. It has. <laughs> And it is the same article where Aldo
1: provides some insights into the collaborative family nature of the business, which at this point involved Aldo's brothers, Vasco and Rodolfo, as well as Aldo's sons, Paolo, Roberto, and Giorgio. And as Aldo reveals, quote, our designs are worked out through a general collaboration by all of us. We meet every 10 days in Florence, and Rodolfo is the one with the most ideas, so maybe the movie experience helped. And we did mention in part one that Rodolfo had been a film star, an Italian film star, for well over a decade at one point. So, you know, it was Rodolfo who was responsible for Gucci's signature flora print design, and, well, Rodolfo and another certain movie star turned princess.
0: Right. So the story goes that when Princess Grace of Monaco, formerly the movie star Grace Kelly, came to Gucci's Milan boutique to purchase a handbag, Rodolfo wanted to gift her with something befitting of her beauty, but had nothing comparable. So he commissioned Italian artist Vittorio Aconero to create a patterned silk scarf for the princess. And as another magazine tells us in an article on the print, the intricate colorful pattern contained quote, 43 varieties of flowers, plants, and insects in a design which encompassed over 37 different colors, which was no mean feat. Each scarf was painted entirely by hand. Aconaro found inspiration in Botticelli's Allegory of Spring, which depicts the nymph Chloris, reborn as flora, spring in Italian, in a gown imprinted with poppies, roses, violets, daisies, and chrysanthemums, end quote. And this floral print remains
1: a staple of the house to this very day, as does another Gucci signature, the, of course, facing double G logo. And something we found fascinating is that there is a letter in the Gucci archive that reveals that Guccio was already experimenting with the branding of his initials GG as early as 1924. And G, Gucci, appears at the top of the letterhead and each G is in red while the other letters are in blue. And and whether or not this was the exact inspiration behind the decision to implement the double Gs into the brand's products, we might never know. But we do know that Gucci was using the double Gs by 1969 as part of this larger wave of logomania among fashion brands.
0: So, of course, today we live in a world where all luxury brands capitalize on the familiarity of their logos, but splashing them across all their merchandise was something very new in the 1960s. In 1969, the New York Times wrote about this new designer phenomenon, calling initials, quote, the newest identification device of designers from Gucci to Yves Saint Laurent to Bill Blast's. Quote, everyone laughs, everyone pokes fun, and no one approves. That's what they say, but somehow it keeps getting bigger and more widespread, and soon we may all smother in an avalanche of designer signatures and initials. (laughs) The article continues, any week now, the newest Gucci shoes and handbags will arrive from Italy. They'll carry a double G design, one facing the other. It's already on leather-trimmed dresses and men's pants, which are selling for $159 and $85, um, respectively, and initial shipments are almost Exhausted. And did you catch
1: that, dress listeners? You know, in addition to developing the famed double facing G logo, Gucci had already entered the luxury ready to wear market. And this is also a new phenomenon of the 1960s and something that would really kind of signal the beginning of the end for the dominance of haute couture as the supreme leader in the world of fashion. By the end of the decade, Gucci's family offerings would expand to include men and women's clothing, as well as bracelets, men's ties. Waterproof cotton raincoats, all of which bared that double G insignia
0: logo. In a 1970 article about the Gucci's new quote-unquote million-dollar clothing shop on 689 Fifth Avenue, New York, the New York Times asked, "Gucci seriously into clothes? Quote, it was my son Paolo's idea, said Aldo. He does most of the designing. He came to me one day and said, Daddy, what do you think? And I said, why not? I will enjoy seeing a charming lady dressed in Gucci from head to toe.
1: And while Paolo may have contributed most of the designs throughout the 1970s, Aldo always reminded journalists that the business was still very much a family enterprise, telling Women's Wear Daily in 1974 an oft-repeated metaphor, quote, People are always asking me, who is your designer? The answer is the same, end quote. And he goes on to share this story that can be found repeatedly in the Gucci archive about how, after having an excellent meal at a family-owned Italian restaurant, the diner happened to ask um, to convey their compliments to the chef, to which, as Aldo tells the story, quote, the restaurateur replied, We have no chef. The whole family is in the kitchen. That's just the way it is at Gucci. We have no designers. The whole family approves every style at our monthly meetings.
0: The article describes Aldo, or rather they call him Dr. Gucci, because as you may remember, dress listeners, he has a doctor in economics and actually a lot of articles call him Dr. Gucci throughout. (laughs) um this era so he obviously requested that but the article describes him as a walking advertisement for the company and photographs of Aldo repeatedly reveal a man of impeccable taste just like his father he's always wearing these sharply tailored high end suits he's even sometimes sporting a flower in his buttonhole and of course he's always wearing Gucci so reads the article almost everything that he was wearing except for a blue suit that matched his eyes were Gucci items necktie shirt cufflinks belt wallet shoes
1: Aldo had undeniably become the head and the face of the company that by the end of the decade had developed into a full-blown empire. A 1974 Women's Wear Daily article revealed that the company included three franchises in Italy, independent boutiques in Switzerland, Germany, and Belgium, 42 affiliates in the U.S., Australia, South Africa, and Japan, two franchises in the U.S., more than 600 employees in the U.S., and a total employment of over 400 people. In 1972, Gucci even added perfume and watches to their eclectic offerings. In
0: 1977, Gucci opened a $2 billion store in Beverly Hills on Rodeo Drive that ushered in this new era of luxury by combining high art and high fashion in an haute-exclusive setting. The store actually boasted the first Gucci Galliera a store within a store that's on the second floor. So populated with a world-class art collections and the company's most expensive items, we're talking like $11,000 in 1977, whatever that translates to today, this member-only space was reserved for Gucci's most wealthy clientele, who reached the space, April, via a special elevator that operated with the use of a Solid gold key <laughs> that was apparently only given out to something like a thousand members, so a thousand clientele. So, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> and that concept would be replicated three years later when Gucci featured a Gucci uh, Galleria on the fourth floor of the company's new, then $18 million, 20,000 square foot store at 685 Fifth Avenue in New York. And the New York Times reported that. Six million of that $18 million was spent on the art that was included in the store, um, including pieces by the likes of Picasso and Modigliani. But not all Gucci customers were the elite of the elite. We're going to hear more about that and the expansion of Gucci's appeal across class lines after a brief sponsor break.
0: Quote, numbered among Gucci customers throughout the world are millionaires, aristocrats, socialites, and superstars, wrote Town & Country in 1977. Gucci customers come in every race, color, creed, and size and shape. And the article continues that far from being exclusive to the upper echelons of society, the company had something for everybody. Quote, Gucci is a mecca for Popper and prince. At a counter in Milan, a bronze teenager in cutoff jeans scrounged in his pocket for enough thousands Lear notes to pay for a key ring. Nearby, a man in flowing robes waved fingers covered with ancient rings over a mountain of merchandise and spoke Arabic. His companion translated, charge it.
1: (laughs) But with such wide and global appeal came one unfortunate side effect. The article reveals that in the last six months, the company had brought 34 lawsuits against manufacturers who were knocking off Gucci goods. Thieves, Roberto Gucci is quoted as saying, We confiscated 82,000 belts this week, 82,000. I tell you, it's a war. This is a problem that Aldo had referred back to in a 1974 article in Women's Wear Daily as a, quote, worldwide problem, mentioning numerous lawsuits in Italy, France, and the U.S., citing one specific case filed in the New York State Supreme Court that Gucci instigated against the Federated Department Stores for a loaf of bread sold by Bloomingdale's entitled... Gucci,
0: Gucci, goo. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you how I cannot get this slogan out of my head now. (laughs) Gucci, Gucci, goo. now we just passed along (laughs) all of our listeners. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, Aldo actually quipped in the article, quote, One nice day I may face a lovely pink and rose toilet paper on which GGG will be written. And while Aldo joked here, his daughter Patricia says that, quote, nothing infuriated him more than to see imitations for sale. And this is actually in direct opposition of how his attitude was portrayed in the House of Gucci film, in which it is Patricia, Maurizio's wife, who is furious at the knockoff, something that Aldo kind of shrugs off. But according to his daughter Patricia, she says that he would directly confront hawkers in the street selling knockoffs, um, berating them before buying their merchandise and then just throwing it away.
1: He also had no qualms about letting people know that they were wearing imitation Gucci products. Uh, (laughs) Patricia recounts a story about him leaning across the aisle on an airplane and asked the woman, excuse me, senora, but what is an elegant woman like you doing with a Gucci imitation? And then he handed her a business card on which he had written, please give this lady a 30% discount on a real Gucci handbag, signed
0: Aldo Gucci. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think we all know this remains a rampant problem today in New York. I mean, I was just there. April, you obviously live there. You can find knockoff Gucci belts, hats, purses, sunglasses on almost every street corner in midtown. And,
1: and also downtown. There, it's just everywhere.
0: Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. I mean, Gucci was everywhere. I was in the middle of writing this episode. I saw Gucci everywhere I went in New York. And while imitation might in this case not be considered by the Guccis to be the sincerest form of flattery, it did in fact con firm Gucci status as this internationally recognized and coveted brand. And it was all a family affair still. While Aldo was undeniably the driving force of the company at this point, the family ran it collectively. You have now second, third, and now fourth generation Guccis working in different capacities across the company.
1: At the time of the extensive Town and Country article in 1977, Aldo was the acting president and chairman of the board of the company. Aldo's son, Giorgio, and his grandsons, Alessandro and Guccio, worked at the Rome offices. His wife, Maria, who had worked at Gucci since the age of 15, was now the director of the Gucci boutique in Rome. And Aldo's other son, Roberto, was the executive vice president of Gucci and director of the store in Florence, where he lived with his
0: wife and six children. I love all these Gucci love stories, by the way, because (laughs) obviously— Lots of kiddos. (laughs) Yeah, and obviously, Giorgio met his wife while she was working there. They are probably youngins working together at at these boutiques, so it's kind of lovely to think about. But Aldo's brother, Rodolfo, was the director of the Milan store, and the article notes that Rodolfo's son, Maurizio, had now joined the family business. After graduating from law school, Maurizio went to New York to learn the ropes of the family business from his uncle, Aldo, who saw great promise in his nephew. He told the New York Times in 1971, perhaps before he meets some unattractive young' girl and settles into family life, I will give him the challenge of becoming my replacement, end quote. And I mean, at this time, Aldo could not have known that this prophecy would become an omen, beginning with Maurizio's marriage in 1972 to Patrizia Martinelli, which as we told you in part one, Dress listeners, we will not be diving into the intricacies of their relationship. There's all kinds of other sources out there, podcast books that will do that for you. Yes, and Paolo describes
1: in the Town & Country article as the company's chief designer. Well, Paolo was the director of the Gucci company's factory, which had moved their premises in the 1960s to the outskirts of Florence. And Paolo had worked at the factory in Florence with his uncle Vasco since 1952. And after Vasco sadly died of lung cancer in 1974, Paolo took over as director And the article provides a wonderfully evocative description of the factory, which was surrounded by a beautiful Italian landscape. And the view behind Paolo's desk was described as, quote, a picture postcard of cabbage fields across the road, rolling Tuscan countryside dotted with villas and poplar trees, end quote. Paolo's office also overlooked a well-lit factory where the author observed, quote, the thumps of cutting tools, the whir of sewing machines, and the fans that remove glue fumes. The walls and drawing boards of the design studios are described as kaleidoscopes of color and fabric samples that are sketches of handbags, buckles, watches, table linen, and china.
0: The article also describes the company's 1977-78 fashion show, which featured men and women's clothing, and they describe it as a triumph with Polo creating, quote, a classic sportive line with imaginative touches that are elegant and very Gucci. We are actually taking a little bit of time to emphasize Paolo's skill and talent here because Paolo's creative contributions to Gucci are not portrayed in the film. And despite the film presenting Paolo as a fashionable dandy, not unreminiscent of Alessandra Michele's vision for Gucci today. I don't know if you agree with me, April, but I, I definitely saw some connections there. <laughs> He's quite fashionable, but, you know, eccentric, but fashionable. He wears wonderful clothing. Um, but the script depicts him as a bit of a tortured figure who's comedic in his ostentation and disrespected and repeatedly dismissed by both his father and his uncle, Rodolfo. And the film really chooses to focus on Paolo's contentious relationship with the family that would develop throughout the 1980s when the family empire would really start to crumble from within in a series of interfamily battles that would dominate headlines throughout the decade and continue to dominate headlines today. Yes.
1: And I just want to like, can we give Jared Leto a huge shout out here? I mean, his (laughs) transformation into the character of Paolo is incredible. And he's also quite charming and funny and touching. And I, you know,
0: between him and Gaga, I have to say that
1: those, those were my favorite two performances.
0: Yeah, I thought everyone did a really good job. I know it's very controversial, although I will say that I didn't think he looked at all like Paolo Gucci, but um, that's my own personal opinion. Yeah, well, you can make your own. <laughs> exactly. Well, also the actor that they hired to play Tom Ford didn't look
1: anything like Tom Ford either. That was, that was a curious <laughs> casting choice on my end. But okay, back to these family kind of squabbles that were happening in the 1980s. In 1981, there was a New York Times article which ran the headline, Gucci's son sues over use of name. And feeling like his creative license was being stifled by his father and his uncle, Paolo left the family business to produce his own designs in 1978 without telling his family, which clearly was problematic. And Aldo and Rodolfo immediately sued to block Paolo's right to use his prestigious family name to market his own designs. And this in turn led to Paolo filing six civil lawsuits against his father between the years of 1981 and 1984.
0: And we've said it again, but for the sake of clarity, we can just not go into the minutia of the fighting between Paolo and his family because, quite frankly, all of this inner family fighting could be an episode in and of itself. There's actually an entire podcasts dedicated to this. So, It's complicated. Pilo gets fired. He gets rehired. And even when he isn't working at the company, he has a 3.3% stake in the company that his father had given him. So that meant he could still be present at board meetings where he even reports being physically assaulted on numerous occasions. There's this whole incident that's like reported on repeatedly where a tape recorder was reportedly pitched at him and hit him. So things got really intense reaching a fever pitch when the IRS announced it was investigating Aldo for charges of tax evasion based on Paolo's past allegations. In
1: 1986, at the age of 81 years old, Aldo began his prison sentence of one year and one day for tax evasion. But as it turns out, prison time was the least of the Gucci patriarch's worries When a series of power moves behind Aldo's back that were executed by his once-beloved nephew and projected successor, well, that would ultimately prove the undoing of the Gucci fashion family empire. More on that after a brief sponsor break.
0: Welcome back. So we are not going to lie. We've said it many times. This last chapter of the Gucci story is not an easy one to address. It's messy. It's very sad. Uh, We are going to do our best to sum it up as succinctly as possible. Uh, When Vasco died, Aldo and Rodolfo bought his share of the company from his widow, and that gave them each a 50% interest in the company. Wanting to bring his sons into the fold, Aldo had gifted Paolo, Giorgio, and Roberto each with a 3.3% stake in the company. Like his father, Aldo excluded his daughter, Patricia, from ownership (laughs) in the company. So this left Aldo with 40% of the company, his sons with 10, and his brother, Rodolfo, with the majority 50% stake. April, I think you agree with me that Aldo could never in a million years had envisioned how this gift would backfire.
1: Absolutely not, because he envisioned a world where his sons and nephew would collectively run Gucci just as he and his brothers had run the company with and after their father's passing as a family. But he could not have been more wrong. In 1983, Rodolfo died of prostate cancer, leaving his 50% stake in the company to his one and only child, Maurizio, who had other plans for the Gucci empire, and Maurizio capitalized on Paolo's and Aldo's ongoing struggles and interpersonal battles by striking a deal with Paolo to buy him out of his shares of the company in exchange for one very important vote. In a Gucci board meeting in September of 1984, Paolo sided with Maurizio in a majority motion to dissolve the board, oust Aldo, and install Maurizio as the company's figurehead.
0: So messed. Yeah. In 1985, the New York Times credited Maurizio with, quote, repairing the house of Gucci. And they quote Maurizio, who, along with the new president of Gucci America, Domenico de Sol, wanted to restore the prestige of the Gucci name, something that Maurizio believed had been tarnished due to negative publicity, but also cheapened by the mass proliferation of Gucci goods. And he's not talking about Gucci knockoffs. He's quoted as saying, it's become too big. We've gone from 10,000 handbags a year to something like 700 thousand and (laughs) I know and in addition to plans of dramatically editing the product line he wanted to restructure the company. Previously, it's apparently had just been divided into two divisions, so sales and operations, but he wanted to create divisions based on products, so shoes, handbags, clothing. Uh, he also wanted to focus on marketing, something he said that his uncle felt was a dirty word. The article says, quote, he hopes in effect to be the Gucci who presides over the transformation of the family company into a modern corporation, In quote. And I ask, at what cost?
1: Well, this is what happened next. Maurizio moved the headquarters from Florence to Milan, a move that Aldo's daughter, Patricia, says, quote, tore the soul right out of the business. And I think we have to agree, you know, because in this move to modernize, Maurizio was basically gutting the company of the very things that had served as its backbone since its founding, family, and also its location in Florence. And Maurizio would ultimately succeed in ousting his family completely. And he did this by teaming up with a Bahrain-based investment banking and asset management company called InvestCore, to purchase his uncle and his cousin's shares. And in a dark but rather symbolic end to this torturous chapter of Gucci's history, Aldo passed away on January of 1990 at the age of 84 years old, completely divorced from the company that he had dedicated his entire life to building. And we did warn you in part one, Dress listeners, that this story was not exactly a fairy tale.
0: Yeah, no happy ending-ish in this in this tale. <laughs> As many of you are probably already aware, the tragedies for the Gucci family would only continue. Despite a promising start, Maurizio proved himself incapable of leading Gucci to the promised golden age. After a prolonged legal battle with InvestCorp over control of the company, he actually sold his remaining shares in 1993, officially ending the Gucci family's involvement in the company started by Guccio Gucci over 70 years prior. So a company that had always been intended to remain within the family now had no Gucci family at all.
1: In 1995, Maurizio was tragically shot and killed by two gunmen hired by his then ex-wife, Patrizia, who is, of course, played by Lady Gaga in the film. As for Paolo, finally having earned the rights to use his name in 1988, he embarked on his dream to realize a luxury line entitled Paolo, designed by Paolo Gucci goods, Um, but this project really never got off the ground, and he died just one year after Maurizio of a heart attack. Aldo's other son, Roberto, launched his own line of leather goods entitled House of Florence in 1993, but the company closed when he died of cancer in 2000, and Giorgio Gucci died just last year at the age of 92.
0: So that leaves Patricia as the only of all those children to survive, and her memoir, In the Name of Gucci, published in 2016, really worked to preserve the life, legacy, and reputation of her family, and specifically her father, who was at the center of the new Ridley Scott film. Uh, he's portrayed by Al Pacino. She and other family members now have famously spoken out against the film. They decried it for its quote-unquote true story, despite never having consulted the family members. And the family said in a release statement, quote, this is extremely painful from a human point of view and an insult to the legacy on which the brand is built today. Gucci is a family that lives honoring the work of its ancestors whose memory does not deserve to be disturbed to stage a film that is not true and that does not do justice to its protagonists.
1: The end of the Gucci family's involvement with Gucci is, of course, not the end of the story of the Gucci brand. The drawn-out feuds would only continue into the 2000s, this time without the Gucci family members themselves, as huge conglomerates wrestled for control of the house on the rise of uh, the direction of the house under Tom Ford, who became the creative director of the house in 1994. And Ford succeeded Don Mello, who had actually been hired by Maurizio in 1989 as the company's first creative director, and while she undeniably began the revival of the brand's image and cachet, it's actually Tom Ford bringing in his own unique vision of glamour and sex appeal that's really credited with restoring Gucci to its rightful place as a modern, covetable, star-studded luxury brand. And today, Gucci maintains this reputation, but what of its link to the family who founded it?
0: Well, April, it's an interesting question and one that a recent Vogue article dismisses is kind of irrelevant. The article says, quote, While it all ended in tears for the family, the house of Gucci, which is now owned by Caring, has never been stronger. But I can't help but ask, can this really be true? How can the house that Guccio Gucci and his family built from the ground floor up be stronger than ever without the family that founded it? Arguably, yes, the brand under the direction of Ford's successors, which included Frida Giannini and now Alessandro Michele, is one of the most covetable luxury brands in the world. But would Guccio and Aldo Gucci even recognize it today? I mean, the answer is likely no, because neither of them ever envisioned a world in which there was Gucci without the Guccis.
1: All is not lost, though, dress listeners. We have to acknowledge that the Gucci company has really worked to preserve the family heritage, beginning with the starting of the historical archive in the 1990s. And as Patricia writes in her memoir, Maurizio's departure, quote, allowed others with vision to slowly return Gucci to its former glory, starting with moving its headquarters back to Florence, its rightful home, end quote. And while she doesn't mention her by name, Patricia is really referring to the vision of Frida Giannini, who was the creative director of Gucci from 2004 to 2015. And uh, Giannini was really instrumental in taking measures to reconnect the brand with its heritage.
0: Yes, so moving the company's headquarters back to Florence was a symbolic first step in her efforts to reconnect the company to its roots and the many qualities that had defined it from the beginning, including an emphasis on artisans and the production of high-quality handcrafted Italian goods. Florence was still the site of the company's factory production, but she brought those two elements together. And Frida turned to the company's archives as well to resurrect a lot of the Gucci signatures that remain a staple of the brand of this day. So the bamboo bag, double G logo, flora pattern, the green and red webbing and of course those famed equestrian themed details. And in 2011 she oversaw the opening of the Gucci Museum in Florence at the Palazzo della Mercanzia, the former site of the Gucci family factory, and the museum was really dedicated to preserving both the family and brand's legacy. And is here when Patricia says, quote, "My grandfather's entrepreneurial spirit and my father's achievements were finally honored." And the family legacy
1: continues to be honored today. In celebration of the company's 100 year anniversary, the museum was transformed under Gucci creative director Alessandro Michele's vision into the Gucci Garden, which is a renovated space and approach to celebrating the family lineage and some of the 37,000 pieces in the Gucci archive. And to develop the space, Michele drew on the expertise of Dr. Valerie Steele, who is of course a past-dressed guest and director and chief curator of the museum at FIT,
0: who helped curate the space. Yeah, and Steele told Robin Gavon, also a past-dressed guest (laughs) of the Washington Post, in her article on the topic, this archive just opened, Quote, the archive is a memory palace. Far from being a dusty attic, it is a dynamic system of knowledge, production, and inspiration. Archives are based on the drive to collect and categorize objects from the past, not because of any nostalgia, but because the style of objects changes over time. This relation to time means that a brand like Gucci, which has a hundred-year history, develops archives in order to keep a tangible cultural heritage alive now and for the future.
1: As Gavon tells us, quote, each room on the three exhibition floors inside the Palazzo is devoted to a different theme and product category as an homage to the brand's history. And Michele has said, quote, my task was to bring many objects back home, virtually helping them return to the family, to a place which ostensibly preserves the past, but which is actually a bridge to the contemporary. An ancient building is a living thing like fashion.
0: It is in this way that the Gucci fashion family legacy lives on within the house of Gucci, not within the dramatic narrative of Hollywood scripts, but in an archive dedicated to the house and brand that this family built and all that it has come to represent and will continue to represent now that it is being preserved for generations to come. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of family and your closet next time you get dressed.
1: remember we love hearing from you so if you would like to email us you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com you can also dm us on instagram at dressed underscore podcast where we'll find images accompanying each week's episodes and you can follow us on facebook at dress podcast without the underscore if you have a moment and would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast
0: listening platform
1: of choice we always appreciate your support
0: And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio, who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way next week. (music) Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.